Well, good evening. Um, it's a pleasure for me to be here. Um, I remember in 2010, the first time I came here, I heard Pastor Conley preach, and I knew that was the church that we were going to go to. And ever since we've been in Greenville, we've been back home in between. But while in Greenville, we've always known that this is where we belong. And I'm very, very thankful, just as Andrew is, for the, the love and the care that was shown. We had a we gave you guys, the Lord granted to us, a special opportunity to be able to partake and be encouraged by your love this past winter when my wife's health was not good. And we really saw the presence of the Lord, the power of the Holy Spirit in his children in the way that you came and helped us. And so I just want to give you, uh, just say thank you for that. Um, I truly appreciate all the concern and care and prayers um, couldn't have done, made, made it, I've just, yeah, very encouraged, so. So, let's open in a word of prayer, and then we will jump into Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 20. Lord Jesus, you're so kind to us. Lord, that you never leave or forsake us, and that you didn't leave us, but that you came and spoke to us, and that you changed us, Father. Lord, could this evening just be a time where our eyes, everyone's eyes are fixed on you, giving glory to you, the only one who is truly worthy. So Lord, help us, teach us, Father, through your Spirit, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So last week, Pastor Connolly brought out the truth that it is time to grow up. And Paul exhorted the Ephesians to no longer be children, but to grow up into Christ. Paul then describes what he means when he says no longer children, and he gives a list of what they are no longer. And I want you guys to think about that while we're going through our text, but he says to them that they should no longer be children, no longer tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine, no longer tricked by cunning, no longer deceived by deceitful schemes, but, or rather, speak the truth in love, Grow up into him who has, the height, in, who has the head, stepping into your role as a part in the body, working faithfully and efficiently to display Christ in action and, and words as we interact with other believers. That was last week. This week in our passage, Paul uses the same technique by telling us what they are no longer. They are no longer to walk as the Gentiles do. He follows the same pattern as last week, going on to describe all that the Gentiles still do. Then, or but, the contrast, he says at the end, that is not how you have learned Christ. So last week, it was no longer children, and this week, it is no longer like the rest of the Gentiles. So follow with me as I read in Ephesians chapter 4, 17 through 20. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you have learned Christ." So I've broken our text down this today into two parts. Um, basically, 
My first, my first part is the gospel difference. Um, and what I'm doing is, when he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And then, so right here, but then Paul gives a list of all that the Gentiles do. So he gives a description. So we'll be skipping past that for now, but we'll be focusing on this. But that is not the way you have learned Christ. So basically what Paul is doing is he's showing by contrast what has, by, by contrast what has happened to them since they have come to learn Christ. So it's key that you think of this phrase right here, um, no longer. In other words, they used to. That's what that's communicating. They used to, but they are to no longer do that. So my first point is called the gospel difference. Um, in verses 17 through 20. So I'll just read it again. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their mind, but that is not the way you learned Christ. So this statement that Paul makes, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, for myself, when I'm looking at that passage, I'm asking myself, why not? Why not? Why shouldn't I walk like them anymore? Right? So when you come to a text like that, and there's, a, there's a, 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 just a command or an imperative, ask yourself, why is he saying that? Where, what are the grounds for this? Um, but again, another question that flows from this is, because we, we say, well, of course you shouldn't walk like that, because that's not how you have learned Christ. Okay, what does it mean to have learned Christ? That's the next question that you ask. So when you're coming to a text, don't be afraid to ask questions. Allow the text to answer. That's one of the best ways to study, actually, is ask yourself, what question is this text seeking to answer? What question is this text seeking to answer? And come up with that question and allow the Spirit to teach you through that. So speaking about learning Christ... How have they learned Christ? E.K. Simpson says, Usually we learn subjects, not persons. But the Christian's choicest lesson book is his love-worthy Lord. This word learned, or how they have learned Christ, refers to salvation. It, it refers to a moment in time that you came to know something. As we saw this morning from J.D. Crowley, as he's but all these things that we can know, and in my mind, I'm connecting that to my passage, saying, when it says, but that is not the way you have learned Christ, that means, but that is not the way that you have come to know Christ. It's, it's past tense, with, but it keeps having an effect on your present. So for us, for us to, to think about this in a way that makes sense, we need to ask ourselves the Ephesian context. How did they come to learn Christ? How did they come to know Christ? So there's the historical record in Acts chapter 19 that we'll be going through. And I, don't, I believe it'll bring out several things. So let, let's jump in. In Acts chapter 19, just story time here, um, Paul visits the city of Ephesus and preaches to them and, and baptizes them upon hearing their belief in the Lord. And some Jewish exorcists attempted to cast out demons by, this, by the name of Jesus in the same way that Paul did. 
But the demons, recognizing these men did not have the power of Jesus on their side, attacked these men and sent them fleeing naked. So word gets around and fear spreads throughout Ephesus because of this event, because the power of Christ was truly revealed and no one... that. Um, the power of Christ was truly re- revealed because no one could cast out demons except those who had the power of Jesus. So Paul, through his handkerchief, was casting out demons, healing sicknesses, and it says that the word of the Lord in Acts chapter 19, verses 17 to 20, it says that, that um, the Lord was magnified and the word of the Lord prevailed in that city. So we keep going. The Ephesian church, having witnessed these things, having witnessed these miracles, they come from a life of witchcraft and sorcery. So they understood power. They understood spirituality. And they came from witchcraft and sorcery. But upon seeing the power of Jesus Christ in their midst, they forsook that life of witchcraft and sorcery. They came confessing their sins, which is interesting. Anytime that the Holy Spirit is at work, people begin confessing their sins and telling their deeds. And that's what they did. They come forward with their books of sorcery and witchcraft, and they burn them. And the stack of books was valued at 50,000 pieces of silver. Well, to us today, that number means nothing. But 50,000 pieces of silver was 50,000 days worth of work for an average laborer. So if you do the math, the average American makes $238 a day times 50,000 days. That's $11,900,000 worth of paraphernalia that was burned. So you tell me, were these people convinced that the power of Jesus Christ was greater than the power of the wicked one? We need this today. We need this. the, the spiritual hosts of wickedness out there right now, I'm not saying they're stronger than they've ever been, but they, they're strong. But we know that the power of Christ is more. These people knew that the power of Christ is more. They left that. They got rid of it. See, the temple of Diana was located in the city of Ephesus. The economy of the city was driven by this temple, and people made their living selling, making idols and selling them to the worshipers. The teaching of Paul about Jesus Christ and the gospel overthrew this useless worship and riots break out in the city because the Jews, sorry, not the Jews, but the uh, Demetrius, one of the silversmiths, accused Christians of destroying their city and their economy. Ephesus appears to be a true stronghold of the devil, and the Ephesian believers had seen firsthand the power of Jesus over the devil and we see this spiritual battle in the ensuing uh, things that happened with the riots and the unrest among the people. So the Ephesian people, they came to learn to know Christ. And by, through, because of that, they forsook everything that they had prior. They had to choose between the life of darkness and demons or the life of light and Jesus Christ. They had understood clearly that they could not have both. It was one or the other. And this is why Paul states, like it says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Why? Because this is not the way that you have learned Christ. See, a conversion in Ephesus, just like a conversion today, is a black and white thing. There's no middle ground. It's Jesus or demons, idols or Christ. The church 
So they, they learned through experience. They, they learned to know Christ. They learned to see his power. But then Paul actually spent lots of time, more time in Ephesus than in any other city that he reached. And he spent two and a half years teaching in the city or in the school of Tyr- Tyrannus. And it, it appears, um, this I'm borrowing from, from Drew, he was saying, um, it appears that Ephesus was the theological you know, powerhouse of that day because in the book of Revelation, that's the first church he addresses and he holds them to that high standard. So what they learned of Christ or how they had learned Christ in our text rescued them from the futility of mind. It rescued them from a darkened mind. Listen, children, darkened. What are we talking about? Blindfolded, right? It rescued them from polluting their bodies. See, our passage shows the difference the gospel makes in a person's life. The Ephesian church used to walk just like everyone else. But what made the difference? Christ. Christ made the difference. And Christ still makes the difference. This passage, when I was looking at it, when I looked at at, at these words that we're going to go into soon, but the state of the Gentiles, the unbelievers, it wanted to, to, to bring me down. It wanted to make me feel like, man, that's hopeless. But it's not. These Gentile believers were this at one time, but Christ. You see, light dispels darkness. Light can't help but shine. Why can't the immoral person take Jesus and his sin? Why not take Jesus and Buddha? Why not pursue homosexuality in Jesus Christ? Because you can't. See, because Christ is real. Christ is alive. Christ is pure. Christ is clean and holy. Christ works in us to will and to do of his pleasure. Christ Jesus is Lord. He has prevailed. You can't have learned Christ and keep your pet sins. You can't be taught of Christ and keep living in darkness. It just doesn't work. And I was thinking about this. When we think about the power of Jesus Christ that we see manifested in the book of Ephesians because we see that in chapter 3 that even the principalities and powers marvel at the wisdom of God and what he can do with a group of ragtag people that come to him in faith. That's true. You see that God is real through that. But I also want you to see the opposite. If you hold to the view that God is not real, then why the big difference in those that accept him? You see all the blessing, the glory, the privilege, the joy, the purpose. But then you also see the truth of those that reject him. Those that reject Christ, that's how we know that Jesus is real. Because you you can't stay neutral. And if you accept him, you see the effects. And if you reject him, you see the effects. There is no middle ground. That's how you know that Jesus is real. That's how we know. So let's go on to our next 
Next point. So it's uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. And I, and I name this, maybe it sounds a little depressing, but I name this the Gentile digression. In other words, all the way down and where it ends up. So follow with me here in Je- uh, Ephesians 4, 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. So, guys, kids, remember, remember the walk? Remember they're blindfolded and, they're, and dizzy, and you could see by the way they were walking that something was wrong, right? If a person is disoriented in their mind, the results will show up in the way they walk, in the way they act. Paul gives a description of those whose walk of who have not learned Christ. To say this in the positive, you could say those that have not been taught, Christ has not taught them. So this word walk, when we think about it, it means literally to go about, to walk around. Um, it speaks of the daily life activities. So what you do throughout the whole week. Paul is saying that their daily activities should not look the same as they used to before you were saved. They should not look the same as the unsaved nations. Jesus uses the word walk in John chapter 8, verse 12, when he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Your feet will follow where your head is. Your feet will follow the direction of your head. The book of Ephesians breaks down neatly in that way. The first three chapters are the head and the heavenlies, and the last three chapters are Christ's feet on the earth. So how do these people walk? And this brings us to our first point, the hardness of heart. So I want us to think here a little bit when we're looking at the text. Um, so they are, they are darkened in their, in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. And here we have a very important word, so why are, why are they darkened in their understanding? Why are they alienated from God? The text answers that because. Why? Because of the ignorance of heart. Okay. But then there's also another, um, right here, because, oh, sorry, because of the ignorance that is in them, speaking of something that exists within the person, and here we have it answered what it is, do to their hardness of heart. So, the hardness of heart is what's the issue. That's tracing the Gentile problem all the way to its roots. So that's why we're going to start, we're going to work through it backwards. We're going to start with that. A hard heart leads to ignorance, and ignorance leads to alienation from God. Alienation from God leads to a darkened mind, which results in mental futility. Or vanity. Um, it's important when we look at Ephesians 4.19 that we don't forget what the root issue is. It's easy for us to jump in here and to say, they have get, look, they've given themselves, they have become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And it's, we could just start hammering people about how they just need to just not give themselves and not become sensual, and don't be greedy, and don't be impure. But really, 
if, if we do that, if we're not careful, we're going to spend all our time treating symptoms instead of focusing on the real issue. See, we don't need Tylenol and aspirin. We need a new heart. Paul has given us a description of the human condition. A hard heart leads to a darkened mind, which leads to a polluted body. This is the description of a lost man. Our Creator, the one who gave us a heart, mind, and body, is the only one who can diagnose the issue accurately, and He clearly tells us what the problem is. It's a hard heart. See, a hard heart speaks, just like some of the children answered. So guys, I want you to think, right now, children, we're on this, right? This is our hearts. We're speaking about the heart. A hard heart refers to lack of feeling or insensitivity. In another description, Paul refers to it as people that are dead in trespasses and sins. And in that context, you, you notice in Ephesians chapter 2, because they're dead in their sins, they follow the prince of the power of the air, they, they live, they carry out the passions of their flesh and the desires of the body and of the mind, and, and therefore suffer the wrath of God. Again, we see the walk following, um, revealing a true issue. So by narrowing it down to the core issue, the Scriptures are very clear what needs to happen to every lost person on this earth. I, I, I think most religions, most false religions, they will deal with this. You know, you know they'll, they'll deal with don't be sensual, don't be greedy, don't be impure. It's because they don't have a God that can give you a brand new heart. See, Christians were honest enough to acknowledge that our problem is our heart. That's what brought us to salvation. We saw that we were corrupt. We were perverted. We were disoriented. See, as Christians, we're not shy to look at that and to say, wait a minute, a new heart? That's impossible. But Christ, right? But Christ. We must be born again. We need a new heart. We can't give ourselves this new heart. We can't fix up this old heart. We need a new one. I think of John. In, in Revelation chapter 5, just, just time travel with me a little bit over here. But John, in, this, in, in chapter 5, it says, like, they, they want to open up the seals. They want to open up the scrolls. And, and there's no one to do it. And, and it says that John looked in heaven and in earth, and there was no one to open the seals. In other words, history will just have to stop. And he cries and he weeps in hopelessness. And then the elder comes to him and says, Do not weep. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and loose its seven seals. It's not hopeless. Because Maybe you're there. Maybe you're crying in hopelessness. Well, cry out to God. Cry out to Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 says that he made them alive. He made them alive. And it doesn't even seem that Paul needs to try to explain exactly how that happened because it's, God does that. God can do that. He can make the dead come to life. And that is why the Gentiles are not to walk in the same manner as they used to walk. Why? Because they've been made alive through Jesus Christ. They were dead, 
and now they are alive. And this is the gospel difference in a hardened heart. So moving on, having seen that the root issue lies, which lies in every human being across the face of the earth, sinner by birth and by choice, we now move on to see the symptoms of this, heart, of this hard heart, or you could say the consequences of a hard heart. Verse 18 says, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated, kids, darkened, right? Blindfolded, alienated. Think of the guy sitting in the front row who's weird and strange. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So because they have hard hearts, they are ignorant. This only makes sense. Think of a hard heart as though it were the nerve endings on your hand that were dead and had completely stopped working. If this were to be the case, you could be touching a hot stove with your hand and not even know that you are being burnt alive. The fact that you are insensitive and unfeeling towards God makes you ignorant. A hard heart makes you ignorant, and you are in trouble but are not even aware of it. In this text, we see that this ignorance is in them, again, pointing to an internal issue. So then we come, come down to this word alienated. So, um, so Paul is now giving his description of the Gentile people, of who these people used to be, and he, he just gives several words to describe it. He says they're darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So this word alienated actually means estranged or um, estranged or a foreigner, which you guys would get when you listen to my accent, right? So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 Paul uses this word alienated, and he uses it to show how the Gentiles were outside the covenant, excluded from the promises of God, and the result was that they were without God and without hope in this world. I thought of this illustration for myself. For those of you that have done missionary work for any amount of time, know what it's like to feel alienated. I know when I was in Bolivia and sitting in a group of men and they were talking about the harvest, and they were talking about how much it had rained and, and how the harvest was looking. And I just kind of sat there and hoped nobody would ask me anything because they were talking about how much it had rained. And I didn't know, was that normal? Or was that a flood? Was it a drought? I didn't have a clue because how much rain do they always get? I don't know. And then they were talking about their harvest. And, you know, it, this, and, this and this many bushels per acre and this and that. And I just kind of sat there and... I felt very out of place because I could not contribute to the conversation. <laughs> I was alienated. I was a foreigner there. I, and, and, and just as a way of joke, sometimes when you're in that culture, you think, that you, you think you know they're talking about the rain and the harvest. They might not even be talking about that. Anyway, that's just on the humor side. So not only are these people alienated from God, but the scriptures are clearer than that. It gives a description. It says they are alienated, or it says right here, from what are they alienated? From the life of God. So right there we need to look and stop and say, okay, what's he talking about? What does this mean, the life of God? I think automatically my mind goes to Adam and Eve in the garden and, and how they, 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 if they ate of the tree they would die. Well, did they die physically right away? No, but they were cast out of the garden and they were separated from the life of God. They were separated from the tree of life, right? 
So you see, the definition, the definition of insanity is to slap the hand that feeds you. I think you'll agree with me. Think of an infant crying out to his mom for food, completely dependent on the mother to provide what is needed to keep him or her alive. This baby doesn't just exist. This baby exists thanks to the parents, and therefore it is completely dependent on their parents. What would you think of a child or a baby that just refused his parents' help no matter what? The rebellion went as deep as to refuse the food supplied by their parents, and they ended up slowly dying. This is what it means to be alienated from the life of God. Separating yourself from the only one who can help you. Genesis 2.7 says, Man was made a living being by the breath of God. There's a reason why people don't like that verse, because the instant you realize you're dependent, that's also the instant you realize you're accountable. Acts 17.28 says, For it's in Him we live and move and have our being. See, we exist because of God, we breathe because of God. Our hearts beat because of God. We think and have cognitive ability because of God. We enjoy relationship because of God. There is air to breathe, food to eat because of God. So why would you alienate yourself from the life of God? In Colossians 1.21, a parallel book to the book of Ephesians, Paul says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in your minds, doing evil deeds. And if you look into that closer, it's the, the evil deeds that they're doing are what alienate them further from God. The hard, ignorant heart leads to an alienation from God, and as one continues on this path away from God, the wicked works continue and only alienate one farther from the only one that can help or give life. Life and power to overcome, life and power to make alive and rescue, life that only comes from God. That's what it's like being alienated. But it's amazing, Ephesians 2.13. Again, it's talking of who these people used to be. But we jump back to Ephesians 2.13. Paul says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And that is why the Ephesian church is to no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles. They are no longer alienated because of the work of Christ, the gospel difference. So this hard heart does not only lead to moral ignorance and alienation from God, but it also leads to a darkened mind. When I was looking at this passage, there's a couple things that stuck out to me. Um, that I could, you know, when it talks here about the mind, right away for myself, I went here, mind, I went to darkened, then I went to understanding, um, ignorance. These are all words that have to do with the mind. Um, and it's the same if you look the heart, and you see the callousness, they have given themselves up, uh, they've become callous. And so as you're looking at the text, you start to pick up on what Paul's doing. He's showing us the mind, the heart, and then in the end, the actual body. Is, it's corrupted. It's, it's polluted. Um, it's the full fullness of who people are. So this darkened mind speaks to becoming dark or unable to understand or to be obscure or blind or make 
dizzy or stupefy, kind of like when I took Ashley and put a blindfold on her and, and twisted her around and asked her to walk in a straight line. She couldn't. She was darkened. It could also even use it to describe suffering from vertigo. The darkened mind is a direct result of alienation from God. Jesus Christ is the light of every man. John 1, 3, and 4, if you want to write it down. I don't have time to go there, but John 1, 3, and 4 teaches us that Jesus Christ is the light of every man that comes into this world. This concept of light is tied together with knowledge. When men are separated from God, they are separated from true knowledge. And when men are separated from God, they are separated from light and are walking in darkness. They don't know where they're going. I was talking yesterday with my children in John chapter 18, and where they're, they want to crucify Christ, and, and they're trying to make their case with Pilate. But they don't want to go into the praetorium because the Passover is the next day, and they don't want to be unclean for the Passover. They have blood on their hands. They've lied. They've brought false witnesses together to bring Christ to kill an innocent man, but they don't want to dirty or defile themselves by going into the praetorium? Like, they don't make any sense. When Pilate asks, who do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus? Ah, release the bloodthirsty man. We don't want the innocent around our children. That doesn't make any sense. That's where we see it demonstrated when people cut themselves off from God, what follows is never good. A worldview without God has no good nor evil. It has no justice. It has no purpose. Ignoring God ignores eternity. It ignores creation. It laughs at the idea of authority and accountability. A worldview separated from God leads to complete darkness and chaos. It leads to looking for light in all the wrong places. Look at the results of ignoring God or hardening themselves against God in Romans 1, 21 to 24. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile, there's our word, vain, in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Again, only a darkened mind would turn its back on its creator and rather worship the creation. But then there's also this aspect where God gives people over and it says in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. These Ephesians can and must no longer walk as the Gentiles because they are not in darkness anymore. 2 Corinthians 4.6 says, For God who said that light shine out of darkness has shone, shone in our hearts, to give the light of what? The light of the knowledge, thinking of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. They have learned Christ. They have come to know the glory of God.
through their new relationship with Jesus Christ. And this brings us to our last point, their polluted bodies. I was wondering how to phrase that so it didn't sound so offensive, but I gave that up and just said what I thought. It says, they have become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Here we see the result of those who have hard hearts, who are ignorant and push themselves away from their Creator. In their darkened state, they seek to find happiness and fulfillment in this life and in anything that is not of God. If your eyes are darkened, your understanding and perception of truth are darkened, meaning you will look to the wrong things to satisfy and the wrong deity to serve. Naturally, because you're darkened, you will settle to serve yourself. They have grown, it speaks, um, when it says they have grown callous, it speaks to this continual hardening of the mind and heart against God. And so, if you think of the formation of a callus, the beginning stage, if you've done any landscaping, the beginning stage is soreness. Your hand is sore and you wonder what's going on. You realize you haven't really worked in your life before and you get a blister. And if you keep working and you push through and you don't quit, you get a callus. And so this word callus means unable to feel pain. This word callus also means unashamed or reckless. In other words, people just stop caring. They just don't care anymore. God has, they, they've seemingly continued to harden themselves against him to the point where they've numbed their conscience to the point where they're just in a free, moral free fall. And I wish, I wish it wasn't this time in history that you can just look and you see this everywhere. This unnatural, the unnatural attraction of man and man, woman and woman, of marriages that are polluted, that are, that are just, I don't even want to go into detail. But these things are against nature. And they're for a reason. It's because they chose to. They didn't want God. And it says they give themselves over to all sensuality. Sensuality refers to an unrestrained moral attitude and behavior licentiousness, lewdness, and debauchery, greedy to practice every kind of immorality. Barclay defines this word greedy as saying it's an irresistible desire to have what we have no right to pursue. An irresistible desire to have what we have no right to pursue. And because they are no longer able to feel or have any sense of shame, they give themselves up to work every kind of impurity. This, this Greek word here for giving, giving themselves up is the same word you find in chapter 5 when Paul exhorts the people to give themselves up for God. In the same way that we give ourselves up to God, unbelievers give themselves over and give themselves up to impurity and iniquity. I, I want to say just a word of warning there. If, if you're in a state where you're, you're living in sin, 
and you still have a conscience, listen to that conscience. Do whatever you need to do. In the heathen world, Paul saw three terrible things. So this is a summary of our passage. Men, men's hearts too hardened that they didn't even know they were sinning. Men so dominated by sinning that shame was lost and decency forgotten. Men so much at the mercy of their desires that they did not care whose life they injured and whose innocence they destroyed as, their, as long as their desires were satisfied. So in conclusion, if you're like me, after looking at this description of the lostness of humanity, you could be tempted to despair. But I want us to remember Paul's exhortation. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In other words, this list used to describe the people sitting in the pews. Now, the people sitting in the pews now, it used to describe them. But look, just take a few moments of time and look with me at the spiritual transformation in these Ephesian believers. And I'll be borrowing from throughout the book up to our passage. So the people went from witchcraft to God-exalting worship. They went from a hard heart that lived according to the desires of the flesh and of the mind to an enlightened mind filled with wisdom and prudence of God, Ephesians 1.9. They went from being futile thinkers with no purpose, destroying their bodies and the passing pleasures of sin, to being those who now think clearly and know that they have a purpose that is rooted in God's eternal purpose and His plan for the church, which is to display the glory of Jesus Christ. They went from being far off from God, alienated and alienating themselves from the only one who could help them, they were children of wrath, they were brought, but now they've been brought near and called beloved because of their adoption in Jesus Christ. Think about that. All of this is impossible were it not for the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ coming to work in them to rescue them from their own desires and cravings. Needless to say, if these people could be rescued, so can we. So can you, and so can your neighbor. This text describes our world around us to perfection. So I can't even add to it. It's just, you just got to look around. How did we get here? Well, our text just explained that to us. We see reprobation now more clearly than ever. Is this a cause for despair and discouragement? No. No, it's not. This time, this is time to speak the Word of God. Wherever we go, wherever we walk about, it is this true and living Word that will bring light and redemption and hope and salvation to the masses. These people were lost before the gospel of Jesus Christ came to them. So I want you to think, how in the world could God bring this heart to a heart that loves people and is willing 
to die for people, that is willing to serve people and serve God and love Him. How can He do that? I was thinking about a peach this morning, of all weird things. There's that big rock in the middle, and yet, in one hand, you hold this rock or this seed, in the other hand, you hold a beautiful peach, full of color, full of nutrition, full of value. That's what God has done with us. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. And so, I want to encourage you, if you're a, non, if you're a Christian who's being tempted, what you believe is beyond what you are able, remember, you're not being tempted beyond what you're able. God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. He'll, he's, he'll make a way of escape. He will never leave you or forsake you. Don't give up. And if you're not a believer, and this list defines you the way it did me, cry out. It's that simple. All who come to him, he will never cast out. Never. Not one. You go through the Gospels, people that come to him in faith, never rejected. It's a lie from the devil that tells you today that God will not accept you if you come to him. So thank you again for allowing me to to be with you and to speak the word. And let's just close in a word of prayer. Oh, Lord, you're so good, so kind, faithful, gentle. And yet when it's time, when it's time to deal with us, you do, and even that you do in your forbearance and in your goodness, Lord. Oh, Lord, I thank you that we can know you and we can come to know you. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to transform us by the renewing of our minds, Lord, through your Holy Spirit. Thank you that he who promises faithful, who also will do it. In Jesus' name.